Hey folks, Steve Shepard here. I had the opportunity a few days ago to sit down once again with my good friend Gary Kessler to talk about the always evolving field of cybersecurity. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know that he's a frequent guest and always has a lot to say about the field because he's neck deep in it. In fact, I encourage you to visit his website, garykessler.net, where you'll find plenty of resources on cyber and quite a few other related topics. So Gary, let's start with this. As the threat horizon intensifies and becomes broader and more complicated, what do companies need to be thinking about? One of the things that concerns me is we have a mindset. You know, this, it's not a matter of if, but when mindset. It's almost that we have accepted that everybody in the universe is at some point or another going to be the victim of a successful cyber attack. And in some ways, I believe that that gives us a level of complacency. We've sort of thrown up our hands and says, this is an unsolvable problem. And so as, as much as we build the dikes around the raging flood, eventually the water is going to overwhelm us anyway. Now, I'll be the first to admit that attackers have an advantage over defenders, particularly for most of us who we're not writing our own code. We're not writing our own defenses. We're buying products that are going to be launching the defenses. And so we're at the mercy of all of our vendors. And if the attacker can, in fact, overwhelm all of the vendors, then indeed, we're all sort of in trouble. And so I think it makes a good soundbite to say it's not a matter of if, but when, but as a matter of practice and mindset, we have to get out of the belief that we can't do anything about this. You know, I look in the maritime industry because that's the industry that I'm closest with right now, and and I observe that one of the, the, the biggest hacks against the maritime industry occurred in 2017 when NotPetya was going around and, and Maersk, one of the largest shipping lines in the world, happened to be victimized by NotPetya. And everybody said, ah, this is a wake-up call for the maritime industry. Well, let's look at 2020. In 2020, there were seven major ransomware attacks against the maritime industry. One company was victimized twice by two different ransomware campaigns. Carnival Cruises just announced that they just got hit by yet another break-in into one of their servers. The third major cyber attack on Carnival in one year. So it it is concerning to me that that the companies are still getting attacked successfully. and, And we seem to have this idea that we can't do anything about it. Now, a joke in the 1990s, you know, when you, when you and I started uh, getting on the internet in, in early 90 and, and then after commercialization when, you know, the masses joined and then we had 94, 95 when we started to have e-commerce. And that's really when we started to see um, a great uh, elements of cybercrime happening. You know, that one of the, the jokes was, well, before anybody should be allowed to surf the internet, they should have to get a surfing license. And to a certain degree, while we can't do that, it's not the worst idea in the world. Everybody needs to be trained and educated to understand what does a cyber threat look like? How does this impact me? And in fact, I think one of the most effective ways of teaching cyber awareness to people is to say, how can we keep your bank account safe? 
how do we keep your personal information safe? And if people get good practices at keeping themselves safe, they'll bring those practices into the workplace and presumably help the workplace stay safe as well. I have grandkids that range in age from two to 13. Even the, the, the two and the five-year-old um, sometimes will pick up the phone to make a FaceTime call to you know their grandmother and me. I'm not actually as concerned with them as I am about the 10 and the 13-year-old who actually are surfing the internet. Kids that young need to know about cyber safety. And of course, adults need to know about it. When a huge company gets whacked in a phishing campaign, it's because one person clicked on something that they shouldn't ought to click on. If you have 30,000 employees, you have 30,000 potential vectors into your company. And so we need to solidify that. It's not the attackers that are the problem. It's the defenses that are the problem because we're still not doing cyber defense 101 very well. Thanks for that. So here's a follow-up question to something that you said the other day when you and I were chatting about this. Why is cyber not just the job of the IT department? Why, in fact, does it belong to everybody? So I think that the function of cybersecurity is very different from that of the information technology group. So the first thing I want to say is that I think that cybersecurity is a little bit of a misnomer. It's really not about cyber per se. It's about information. And, you know, back when I got involved in this, and it's been several decades that I've been involved in this, we've called this all sorts of things, network security, computer security, information security, information assurance. It, it, you know, the, the buzzwords kept changing. And finally, you know, about eight or nine years ago, it became cybersecurity. But the point is, it really is about information. If I go into class and I have a roster of all of my students and I've got a picture of them and their student ID numbers, that's information that has personal information on it, personal identifying information that presumably I need to protect. And at the end of a semester, I would shred it. There was no cyber aspect to that at all. It was all about protecting the information. So I'm going with that because the, the information technology people have a job and their job is how do I set up computers and servers? How do I architect a network so that it is, you know, uh, operating in an optimal fashion? Yeah, I'm going to worry about some security aspects, but security is not the primary job of the information technology group. The information security group has to be in charge of that. And what I see in many organizations, and certainly in the thought processes of many high-level C-suite officers, is that information technology is going to take care of my, you know, my security needs. And, oh, well, if we need, we'll have an information security officer who reports the information technology people. And, and I guess the claim that I'm trying to make as forcefully as I possibly can is that information security and the protection of information is not as much about technology as it is about policy, procedure, governance, management, all those kind of things, up to and including the entire risk management process. And that the people in charge of your information security, your chief information security officer, has to be on par with your chief information technology officer. They do go hand in hand. So what do you think it's going to take to get everybody thinking that way? Well, 
I think it requires an entire mind shift in the industry. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of reading where I'm not the only person who's saying that information security is not an IT job. However, one of the places where I don't see this being said in a strong way, unfortunately, is in academia, where in academia, we are still promoting the idea that information security should be taught in the computer science department. And while I have no objections to it being taught in the computer science department, I will observe that most computer scientists look at the problem as a computer science problem. And they look at it, therefore, as having a solution that is a computer science solution. Now, I think it's important to say that my academic background is in mathematics and computer science. So I, I, I'm not taking pot shots at computer science. Computer science is bringing us quantum computers, is bringing us algorithms. It's bringing us tools which we can use to fend off cyber attacks. However, I again take the posture that, um, that, that the primary defenses that we need are in the user community because you can give me all the tools in the world with which to fend off a cyber attack. But if I have users who are, are going to be susceptible to social engineering, well, you can't build me a tool to protect me against social engineering. So I need to have trained professionals, educated professionals that regardless of the profession that they go into, bring enough cyber awareness into whatever business they do, that they can see some of the information gaps within wherever it is they go to work. I'm not suggesting that they then become necessarily the information security officer, but what I am suggesting is that information security, on the one hand, I will say is a horizontal, but in each industry, there are verticals. Again, I'll go back to maritime. Maritime has the same cybersecurity issues as everybody else but maritime also has its own unique systems, unique culture, unique way of life. Aviation, same thing, has the same cybersecurity issues as everybody else, but has its own unique needs. And so you need that, that matrix management, if you will, of the cybersecurity professional and the subject matter expert professional and bring them together. And that can't happen in a computer science department because that's not what computer sciences do. So Gary, as cybersecurity has grown in importance and become increasingly, I don't know, visible, discussions have popped up in a lot of companies about where to place the function organizationally. And it kind of goes back to your earlier point about it not simply being the IT organization's responsibility. One of the most intriguing ideas that I've heard is that it should be placed under the chief financial officer. What are your thoughts about that? Well, that's, that's actually an interesting argument. The second job that I had was running an academic computer center at a small college. As the coordinator of academic computing, I reported to the director of the computer center, who in turn reported to the vice president of finance, because that's the way it was back then. Um, you and I used to work together at a company where I was director of IT, and who did I report to? The finance officer. Now, I will observe that this was at an era when there were a number of people in the IT industry saying, you know something, maybe it's the finance officer who ought to be reporting to the chief information technology officer. And there were a lot of arguments for that as well. Um, I think that 
reporting to finance is probably the wrong thing to do because while that is where the pain is going to be felt, it's not just a financial imperative. It's also a human resources imperative. It's a training imperative. You know, one of the other problems that we have, and I, and I recognize this as well, the example I gave before of Maersk getting hit by, by NAPETCHA, Maersk lost reportedly about $350 million. Notice that they did not go out of business. There are other companies that are making a profit margin of $18 a day. I understand that in many ways, they are the ones that are most at risk. However, a lot of cyber defense doesn't cost a lot of money. Everybody doesn't have to have a $1 million a year managed network. And in fact, I would observe that if I build a castle and I build the walls and, and I have all the guards and there's only one way in and out, I'm a relatively secure castle. If I now outsource the guards to, you know, the Hessians, so now every eight hours, a group of Hessians are coming in and another group of Hessians are going out. I've just introduced a new vector of attack because somebody can come in sneaking to be a Hessian. By the way, who's vetting the Hessians that are coming in? I'm not. They're not my employees. It's, you know, Hessian Security Incorporated who has to be making sure their employees are okay. So my point is that when you have a managed network service, you now have to consider all of a sudden there's remote access to your network and the protections against that. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't go out and get third-party networks, but I am suggesting that I don't necessarily need to have third-party network supervision for you know every network in the world. I need every network in the world to be doing security 101 well, but big part of that is training your employees because again, while we hear a lot about ransomware, ransomware happened generally um, because somebody's clicking on something, which is now getting dangerously close to social engineering. We're hearing a lot about supply chain issues. Well, again, supply chain is because I have a vulnerability because of a gap in my firewall letting a trusted partner in. And how good is the security at the trusted partner? So this is a very, very complex situation. And I don't want to make any sort of claim that says, you know, there's, there's easy fixes to this. But again, it's not just an information technology thing. And for that matter, it's not just a finance thing. And that's why I'm saying that the information security people, this, this is a specialty. It's its own profession. And these are the people that need to be in charge of these practices and policies at a company. Okay, this is sort of related. You have an interesting position on the role of intelligence gathering as it relates to threat response. Can you say more about that? Intel gathering is an important function. But I take myself as a user. And I read all the newsletters telling me about, you know, the next attack that's going to happen. But the fact is, I don't really know the threats against me. I don't know what, what harm is in my way. The only thing I can really do is seek out my own vulnerabilities and fix them. And one of the things I have mentioned in the past, um, I've repeated uh, it's from other people, is vulnerabilities trump threats maxim, which says I, I can learn all I want about threats, but I can't plan around threats because A, I don't know what all of them are. 
And if I plan around threats and I get that wrong, I'm screwed. Whereas because threats are external and I can't control externalities, I can control internalities, if that's a word, by which I mean I can look at my own systems and I can pound on them and study them to find the vulnerabilities and shore up the vulnerabilities. Now, shoring up the vulnerabilities may be as easy as just keep up to date on software patches because the fact is I can't find the vulnerabilities in the latest version of Mac OS or Windows. But when Apple or Microsoft put out a patch, I really ought to install them. And that, of course, speaks to all of my application software as well. That's the part I can do. I can train my users when something looks weird. I can make sure that I have policies and procedures in place that when an employee gets something that looks weird and they question it, but it was in fact legit, nobody says, hey, that was legit. Why are you questioning all this stuff? I mean, the fact is we need to build in a culture of, I hesitate to say this, professional paranoia. There's a lot of talk about this whole idea of zero trust, and zero trust is defined in a, in a bunch of different ways, and NIST has their own definition. To me, zero trust means exactly what the words say. As a user, take nothing at face value. So I need to have a culture online that says, take nothing at face value. Okay. And what about the motivations that drive these various bad actors that organizations have to be cognizant of as they build their defensive strategies? I think we forget the hacker community, and not even the hacker community, the cyber criminal community and or state actors that are trying to do us harm for one reason or another. These are professionals. They know their job way better than we as users know our job as a user. One of the other things we need to also be cognizant of when we're looking at threats and doing threat management is the fact that an attacker has a different reward for attacking us than we might think. So for example, if, if you're a criminal and you find that you cannot get into my Bitcoin wallet, you're going to give up and you're going to go try to find somebody else. But suppose you're an intelligence agency and I'm a terrorist organization or a criminal organization for that matter. You may not care whether you can get into my Bitcoin wallet or not. But if you can somehow make me unable to get into my Bitcoin wallet, you have done your job because you've disrupted the movement of money. So again, you know, somewhere in the calculus of looking at, at threat and vulnerability and risk is an attacker has different reward. Like I said, cyber criminals, they're looking for the lowest hanging fruit they can find. An advanced persistent threat actor, they are looking for you. All right, then. Thank you, Gary, for once again giving us a great perspective on best practices for digital asset protection. Folks, Gary Kessler is one of my oldest and dearest friends. He's a global thought leader in cybersecurity and a principal consultant at Fathom 5, where he's engaged in maritime cyber consulting, training, and research. He's also the co-author with me, I'm honored to say, of Maritime Cybersecurity, A Guide for Managers and Leaders. The book focuses on maritime cyber issues, but its teachings and its recommendations apply to all data assets, maritime or otherwise. Hey, thanks for dropping by. 
I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.